This is Season 6, Episode 7, The Art of Frugal Hedonism with Annie Razor Rowland. Annie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good to be here. And in classic fashion, as soon as I press record, there's going to be a train go past. <laughs> let's just invite that into our experience. Um, right. How are you going today? Excellent. It's Yeah, it's a stunning day and I feel like I'm living in paradise in Fremantle, so I'm pretty happy about that. Are you close to the beach, close to the coast? Yeah, 15 minutes right away and I do manage to get in the water most days, which as someone who's been away from Western Australia for 25 years, still feels so incredible to me that that's something I can do on a daily basis that I keep sort of telling people here about it. Like <laughs> I went for a swim every day this week and they look at me like, yeah, so what? But I'm still so excited about it seven months in. It's such a um, medicinal experience, isn't it? It's like I, I went down to the coast to facilitate last week, I think, and it's two and a half hours from here. Mm. And, um, and I was like so desperate to get the salt sea medicine. Um, but then I got there and it was just the filthiest day and the swell was really, you know, the swell was huge and was not like one of those Western Australian kind of beach days. And yeah, the torment of Victorian coastlines versus you guys over there, I think is very real. <laughs> Yeah, I never really adapted to Victorian coasts in 25 years of living there as as being proper beaches. I've got to say, when you when you grew up a West Australian, Victorian coasts never quite make the grade. <laughs> I get it. Pretty, pretty damn good. And yeah, I, I do find it incredibly medicinal, both physically, um, but also. If you're having a little bit of a misanthropic streak, sort of feeling that people aren't living in ways that you can respect or similar sentiments that well up in all of us sometimes, um, you go to the beach and see people just being there in their animal bodies and enjoying that and they're beautiful. Like it's people there not consuming anything, just squishing themselves into the sand because it's hot and feels nice and lying there and getting sunburnt and falling asleep and drooling onto their towel and splashing around in water. And it's, it's a really nice way to look at human beings, human beings being at the beach, just reveling in their bodies. Mm. And I really, I really appreciate it for that as well. Mm, that's so beautiful. psychologically medicinal as well as physically medicinal yeah totally that child and the childlike wonder that people get when they it's like they become their their mammal cells but they also become their child cells at the beach you know like all the splashing and the chasing and the balls and you know it's really I love that um and I'm curious because your book was I read it years and years ago and I loved it so much and it's really been like a cornerstone that I've just kept coming back to over the years. Um, but I'm curious about like what you're exploring now in life and work and beyond, like how has that concept of frugal hedonism kind of expanded or been embodied more since you wrote that book? I don't know if it's been embodied more. It's continued to be embodied. Um, 
I think I'm I'm an the adult version of myself enough at the age of 44 that um, those kind of habits aren't going to really change dramatically in any way at this point. And so it has been interesting to transplant myself to a whole new context here, which um, the reason I came back is partly that real craving for a really intoxicating physical environment because I am someone who thrives on that a lot and didn't feel like I was getting that in Melbourne at some point, um, but also because of health issues that were really exacerbated by Melbourne extreme temperatures and um, pollen levels and pollution levels. Lots of, I've developed quite a um, nasty little cluster of autoimmune type stuff that is creates a lot of respiratory problems that was really getting aggravated by Melbourne air. Um, so I've, came back here for both those reasons and thought I'd see how it go, how it went. And it's been interesting seeing how much of my frugal hedonism is applicable in this whole new context where you don't have all your community links established and so on and what I've had to do to rebuild that. Um, you know, I don't have a garden here, which is been really different um and i not kind of hooked into all those networks where you just magically get things for free and exchange things with friends without even putting any effort into it but i can happily say that seven months in i have been able to establish most of that stuff and i now know where all the kind of overhanging fruit trees are that you can pick things from that nobody picks and i've been gorging on mulberries and locusts and orange season the citrus season here is amazing the olive season you could you could seriously run an entire olive industry just from one square block in Fremantle there's so many olive trees that just drip with olives um and I found a household that owns some goats that um I go milk once or twice a week and get eggs from their chooks in exchange for that um, and figuring out where those kind of free third places are that we talk about in the book, places that you can go and not have to spend any money to be amongst people. That's taken a while, but, you know, I've sort of worked out where those are at this point and that has required spending money here in a way that I haven't, that I never did much in Melbourne where there I relied on the library a lot, but the library is not as easy to work in in an extended way. So I have had to become someone who spends time at a cafe drinking a coffee over the course of four hours <laughs> to have that sort of free, that third place in public where you just get to be amongst people. But I can happily stretch a coffee over four hours. Um, and... The compensation for not being linked to all of those things that help me live really frugally has been that increase in incredible free sensual pleasures that I get here of being able to, say, go ride my bike to the beach every day and swim and um, go lie in the park more just because the weather's better and because I'm not always full of snot from allergy and pollution. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been interesting. 
that transplantation and making connections, human connections has been a big part of that. So I instantly joined quite a few classes and stuff I was interested in from a yoga class run out of a community house where I've made quite a few friends to taking French classes, which is something I had always wanted to do. And that's hooked me up with people and uh, led me to discover things like the local repair cafe that happens once a month that turns up, turns out it's only just up the street from me. And so I just went and got my printer fixed there the other day and met people there. And it's interesting becoming, becoming a different version of my frugal hedonist self in this new context. But also I love how you described that because I think that we believe that these things are context-specific, right? Like we have this idea, particularly in a capitalist world where things are dependent on us being in a certain place or like, well, I get it a lot, you know, well, I live in the in the city so I can't, I can't live regeneratively like you being not in the city and whilst I understand that feeling and the pressures and the urgency and the pollution and all of those things that you spoke of, I also think that there are ways of adapting the principles of regenerative living just like you're saying adapting the principles of frugal hedonism and I love how you describe that process of beginning to embed in community and and the set of actual skills as well as I think a certain posture or certain courage to do that I think is um, is something that we need to learn how to relearn how to do. But for those who haven't read the book, I'd love to hear um, what is frugal hedonism and, and within that you mentioned kind of sensory society or that sensory experience. Can you explore that a little bit more? Before I answer that, though, I'd like to counter that it's hard to live regeneratively in the city. I absolutely disagree in a lot of ways in that cities are, I mean, yes, it happened that because of whatever my particular genetic makeup is, um, that Melbourne wasn't working for me on the health level in the last five years or so, but... um, I mean, several times when Adam and I were a couple, when we wrote the book, we thought about moving to the country. But each time the thing that stopped us was, God, we'd have to consume so much more to live in the country because cities are full of everyone's excess and waste cycling in a really prolific and dense way and it is just so easy to live in a city and entirely furnish your house and get any building materials you need off birdside collections out of buy nothing groups where you just, you know, end up walking up the street and carrying that couch that you need or whatever it is up the street to your house because everything is dense and because there are always unwanted goods or things that were going to be thrown out cycling within the community in a really dense and therefore much more accessible way. And if you're reclaiming food waste, that's often a lot easier to do in a city too. There's all this, you know, the cheap stuff at the markets at the end of the day or free stuff or there's dumpster diving if that's what you want to do or there's people putting out boxes of clothes on their verges that you can ransack. You are more likely to live in a share house where you pass things around between housemates. 
Uh, you don't need to drive if you live in a city in lots of cases. Um, so, yeah, I would really disagree that it's hard to live regeneratively in a city. Mm. Uh, but, it, and it, yeah, it literally was the thing that stopped us moving to the country is we're like we'd just, we would just have to consume so much more than we do living in the city. Yeah. Um, but to answer your other question, the title of the book, Frugal Hedonism, is an intentionally slightly challenging little combination of words because most people associate frugality with suffering and deprivation and associate the word hedonism with excess and unbridled gratifying of your desires and needs and um we wanted to make the point that if you are just always gratifying every consumer urge you have, you tend not to appreciate what you're consuming half as much as someone who sort of walks a line between, yeah, I'm going to splurge now, but I'm going to be a bit frugal now. Um, because you just really blunt yourself to the pleasure and the luxury of what you're consuming. Um, that's something that lots of philosophers have talked about over the years, which is, it's, I mean, you could even use classic things like the Marquis de Sade is that he ceases to be satisfied with common or garden sexual pleasures because he's so depraved he has to keep looking for more and more extreme things. And that does actually apply with consumption too, is that mm -hmm. if people eat out a lot, then it only counts as a treat if you eat out somewhere really fancy or if people buy lots of um, home goods whenever they sort of want to, I want that, you know, nice little trinket or I want that kitchen appliance or I'm going to buy those new cushions or that rug or whatever it is, then they're unlikely to be really excited when they go, I just got a really good bar mix that blends everything and it'll just be, oh, yeah, that's another piece of junk in the cupboard that I forget to use. And that applies across the board. It applies to what kind of house you live in, what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of car you drive if you drive a car, what kind of technology you expect to use, is that if you just always give yourself whatever you want, you don't actually get a lot of that hedonistic kick from the stuff that you do consume you have to always up the ante the flip side of that in the way that frugality really assists hedonism is that by consuming less you spend less and that translates directly to working less if you want it to so that you actually have less stress and more time to do all of the things that are really sensually hedonistic, maybe not consumer hedonistic, but sensually hedonistic. And that is why I can go swim at the beach every day and go spend the morning in the park um, reading a book because I just live on so little that it really is optional to me to work beyond a certain amount in any given week. Um, and at the moment I'm essentially living off book royalties from the couple of books I've written, which for most people would be well below the poverty line. But because of the way I've chosen to structure my life, 
life and how much I expect to consume, then it's really entirely feasible for me. Um, where I'm living, I pay only partial rent and because the person I'm living with has a couple of mobility issues and more to the point, just aesthetically detests cleaning, <laughs> then I do all of the cleaning as, as part of, because I like a clean house as part of our rent deal. And, you know, I ride my bike everywhere and it's an old bike and I've already talked about some of the ways I get food. Um, and beyond that, I don't really have a lot of expenses. I bought a dress at the op shop yesterday that cost $7 and I felt like that was quite a splash out. Um, other ways in which frugal, frugality and hedonism are incredibly compatible apart from that capacity to not work as much and to not blunt your capacity for sensual pleasure is that being more self-reliant tends to keep you fitter and have you eating a little more healthily overall and keep you more socially connected because you are forced to ask other people for help to do things cooperatively with other people, to maintain good human relationships because you know that you'll rely on people and that might sound mercenary in a way, but that's actually a realistic component of sort of village-style social function is that you try and be good to people who maybe you don't even particularly like or don't get on with in a sort of we-want-to-be-best-friends way, but you're like, I'm going to be good to you and I'm going to chat to you and I'm going to, you know, pat your dog when we pass and ask how things are going with your kids or whatever it is um, because we need each other because we're part of a community. And even if those aren't those really intimate social reactions, they keep you feeling healthily sated with that sort of just small drip feed of human contacts that we all need as well as those more intense, meaningful relationships. Um, on the health side of frugal hedonism, I've even got an almost little perverse case study is that my partner after Adam, who when I met him didn't have the kind of frugally hedonistic habits that I have, but not by me being anyway a missionary um, or indoctrinating him intentionally he just sort of fell a bit into my my modes of doing things by I guess observation and by being together and I watched him transform from having quite an unhealthy lifestyle in a lot of ways to just once he took a, he, he got rid of his car because he was like oh yeah maybe I don't actually really need it and chain ended up cooking for himself a lot more and several aspects of his health turned around really quite intensely over the seven years that we were together um, because of just those subtle shifts in how he went about meeting his daily needs in a slightly more frugal way. So the upshot of that is that the book partly aims to prove that frugality and hedonism are far from being a contradiction in terms but are actually phenomenally compatible and that frugality when done right is very conducive to a very hedonistic lifestyle, much more so 
than lots of the higher stress, high work, unhealthy, socially disconnected lifestyles that are becoming the social norm these days, sadly. Mm. I love that so much because I'm, I'm one of those people that was like, I'm never going to turn into my mum, right? And then now here I am. And she was always at, at us about capitalism and consumerism and, you know, and as a teenager, you're just like, that's the most uncool thing in the world. Yeah. But now I find myself getting more and more, I mean, I put in air quotes radical because I don't think it's radical. I think it's um, just what life would have us do if we want to survive this, <laughs> this move towards something a little more kinder and equitable and regenerative yeah. and all of those things. But I love what you're saying about how consumerism actually takes us not away from the things that we think it's going to, but toward them. And frugality, by contrast, we think it's going to take us away from pleasure when essentially it's the thing that takes us towards that actual deep, unbridled, embodied sensory pleasure which is the thing we most seek when we're consuming anyway right so I I love the the contrast and and I'm always so curious about how these concepts can be explored in the body and something I talk a lot about is how do we embody sufficiency right like how do we as folks who have been taught from a very very young age this lie of scarcity um and that we live these incredibly individualist and um, consumptive and extractive lives, how do we actually learn that it's safe to have less and to uh, be reliant in community, for example, and to be interdependent? Like, How do we relearn the posture of that in the body? And mm. I wonder for you, like, what comes to mind when I say that or what your thoughts are on that? So... Do you mean what the the attitude of your actual physical body is in approaching the world? I guess what I'm thinking about is like how do we begin to unlearn scarcity which drives consumption and relearn frugal hedonism? Like how do we learn that that's safe in our bodies? Because I think that there's this fear that comes up of like if I don't have enough then I'm not going to, you know, what if I don't have enough and then I'm going to be all alone? You know, like there's this real terror that in capitalist societies I see. You just cut yourself off saying that and then I'm going to be alone bit and I do think that that is actually one of the key parts of the the unsafe feeling Mm. for a lot of people is what comes up most consistently um, when I've given workshops about the book or um, been to book groups about it is people, very few people are worried about not having enough in terms of, you know, enough to eat or a house to live in. That doesn't come up that often. It's... People fear that if they don't consume within the patterns of the dominant society they live in, that they will be left out socially. Mm. And that's that's the fear that that I see coming up again and again. And it was interesting, I went to a book group quite recently who were talking about the book and they all had to talk about the chapter the structure of the book group was that they all had to talk about the chapter that had meant 
the most of them and a surprising number of people said the one that's called find third places and third places is actually a concept that we borrowed for the purposes of the book that the man we borrowed it from defines it as somewhere public where you can be in the company of other people without having to spend um, money or if you do, it's a, a very small amount of money and where you are somewhat recognised by at least some of the people that go there and where you can stay not, you know, for as long as you want but for a long time. Um, and a lot of people talked about how much they really, really wanted more places like that in their lives. And I think that's because as soon as we go, well, if I'm going to consume less and not be socialising with people via going to cafes and restaurants all the time or bars or attending high-consumption events, how do I go about all of that? that sociability, I need to be around people and that's the fear that, that comes up in people's heads is how do I get to be in with the people? Yeah. <laughs> and that is both in that sort of being in public and uh, actively socialising way and in the, you know, will people look at me as if I'm not like them because I'm not wearing the right kind of clothes or eating the right kind of food or going to the same places or exhibiting the same values. And I think that is where the biggest fear lies for a lot of people. Um, and it's really, it's actually one of the things that's trickiest for me to give advice for to people because I'm probably cut from that cloth where I've always actively thrived on being different than people around me and haven't felt a lot of fear in relation to that. And I'm well aware that for a lot of people, that's a really scary thing is being, being different. Um, but what I have witnessed people taking from the book that has made them feel safe in that way of having different consumption patterns than people around you and still feeling safe within that is not trying to be too dramatic about it, mm. but just kind of switching out some of their life activities with other ones that are lower consumption and finding that their friends really are pretty happy to come to the party often Um that you don't you don't want to insult the people you know by assuming that they're not going to be interested in doing something a little differently just because you've always all done it the same. Um, and I think COVID taught a lot of people that you can have as good a social time with someone just going for a walk and talking as all the other stuff that people used to do and often a better social time and that you can feel as much a part of a thriving, fascinating human world by going sitting down by your local creek or beach or park or whatever it is and watching the human parade go by and eating a freaking bag of peanuts or whatever or not uh, than by going sitting in a cafe or whatever it is. And 
people that I know have reformed in response to COVID already quite a few of those social habits to be lower consumption because that wasn't possible. And so I think it's a really excellent time for people to hang on to some of those habits and the fact that stuff that previously might have seen been seen as not the dominant way to socialise has now become acceptable and to maintain that because it's, yeah, it's already happening. Um, so that's sort of one little gain in that area of safety, of feeling safe socially, like you're not going to lose people by changing your consumption habits. But then if you are a bit ballsier and happy to not be evangelical but to talk to people about what you're doing, I've had some people report to me that they actually just explained to friends that they'd sort of done a bit of a life audit and said, no, we want to, you know, prioritise where we put our energy and our money and we're not going to do that house renovation that we're thinking about. We're going to cut down our working hours instead because we don't actually care about renovating the house or about upgrading to a better car or buying the second car we were thinking about or whatever. Um, And we're going to focus more on me writing this book that I've always wanted to write or on spending more time with the kids or on one of us only working part-time or both of us only working part-time. And there's going to be no more Friday night dinners at the restaurant. You're all coming to our house and we're going to have soup night instead. And people come up with ways to just swap out some of the stuff in their life and make it, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. And I think people often get overwhelmed by the sense of all or nothings, but it's, yeah, communicating to the people you know so they actually know where you're coming from not only opens that conversation for them to then think about, well, maybe I'd like to do some of that stuff too, but means that they're actually a bit curious and interested in how you're going about life rather than it being an isolating thing because you're doing something different in as if it's a dark, dirty secret that you stopped <laughs> buying so much stuff. Yeah, or like in my case, I've become the person that everyone's like, does anyone need this? And I'm like, we'll have it. You know, like we, we just take all the yeah. junk, right, because it's not junk to us because we can use it and we then we don't have to buy it and then it's been recycled. But I think for a long time I was like, I don't want to be that person in my family that's always like getting the free stuff. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, why would I not? It just makes no sense. But I but that I think you explained that so beautifully in both um the terror of of opting out and then the and then but then also that coincidentally or paradoxically, I guess, the deep longing for like true connection that lies underneath some of the consumptive experiences that we have. And, and I also loved that expression of, you know, I think often in this all or nothing kind of world, which is part of the system and how it's been designed is that we do want to be at the end. We want to extract the outcome as quickly as possible and avoid the process, right? And so this mm-hmm. idea of taking one step at a time and noticing that no one leaves you or rejects you or the world doesn't end when you say, you know, I stopped drinking this year. Like, and I was made that such a huge thing in my head. And it was honestly the most non, like <laughs> biggest anti-climax of my life. Like no one cared at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
one foot at a time because I think when it comes to opting out, the tendrils of consumerism and capitalism are so deeply entrenched in our ways of being and in our minds and our hearts that it's like it takes time to un extract ourselves from that which is why incremental change really can be such a yeah a better strategy some some personalities thrive on dramatic overhaul but i think for the majority of people incremental change is a a lot sweeter i always get to week three in my cycle and i'm like it's as my husband calls it like the burn everything to the ground phase (laughs) where i'm like everything's going and i'm starting again and you know i think but my deeper heart knows that incremental change is better even though there has been moments i think like your move or when we've made some big move big bold moves that has come in relation or in response to the just feedback of the body you know being like enough Mm. It's just enough. I can't, we can't live like this anymore. Um, and I think that expression feedback of the body is a interesting one that there is, I can't actually remember the name of the chapter now in the book. It might just be hate waste. Um, yeah. But we, t- there's not a lot in the book as you will know and any listeners who've read it will know it is a book about consuming less but there's very little emphasis on the environmental reasons for consuming less it's in there as a thread but we're as much saying consume less because it's actually a better lifestyle Mm. we really wanted to come at it from that angle um Excessive consumption is just a sort of grotesque and personally destructive lifestyle as well as the societally and environmentally destructive one, but we're focusing on the personal side rather than the environmental side for the most part. But there is one chapter in the book where we say just feel that visceral reaction that you have when you walk past piles of overflowing junk that people have say put out during hard rubbish collection where there's flat screen TVs and near new uh, bedding and all sorts of incredibly useful stuff or that visceral response you have when you see you know a kid that's maybe one or two years old at a birthday party just drowning in presents that they will never appreciate and won't even understand what they're to do with or that visceral response that you have when you look around your own house and go my god what is all this stuff that I've bought as I know so many people have like how do I organize it like this it's just almost owning me. It's an avalanche of stuff that I seem to need to look after. And that visceral reaction, that expression of the bodily sentiment to feeling this isn't good (laughs) is something that's nice to heed rather than just squashing it down and going, oh, well, I guess that's just life. Um, And I actually want to bring up again the, Repair Cafe, having been there just recently, it's at the front of my head, is the reaction that I was watching people get to having the stuff that they thought they might be going to have to send to landfill, that their brains were telling them was, surely this shouldn't get thrown out. This is just 
it's it's practically good. There's just something tiny and small wrong with it that I don't know how to fix, but there's no business or no professional around that fixes such things anymore or people tell me that it's unfixable or that it would be cheaper to buy a new one. And people were seriously experiencing physical euphoria mm. en masse in this room from getting this stuff fixed and going, I now don't have to send this to landfill. I don't have to go buy a new one. And this just feels right that this was able to happen. And it was like a chemical you could feel in the room. It was more than the sum of the its parts in terms of how much money people had saved or whatever else was going on. And I had someone who was involved in a project uh, in Melbourne a few years ago who set up a, I cannot remember the name of it, but it was something akin to a repair cafe, but it was more just if you had anything broken that couldn't go to an op shop but that you were convinced was too good to be thrown out, you took it there and they had teams of people who would sort it and gradually get around to fixing it and then on-sell it at a really cheap price. And they got so overwhelmed by stuff brought in. They did almost no social media around it or anything. But once word of mouth got out, they were so overwhelmed, she went into complete burnout and had to shut it down. But that to me speaks to this fact that people are having this gut reaction to throw away consumer culture and excessive consumption that says in their bodies, this just feels icky and wrong to me. Like I want, I desperately want to figure out an alternative to this, <laughs> that people were driving their stuff across to this one depot saying, can you just make this not be the end of this object's life? Cause this feels crazy to me. And yeah, we know that stuff in our bodies because we look at all the resources that have gone into those objects and go, this this isn't right, that this is waste. And I think that's really worth obeying that that urge and going, all right, well, how do I make it not be? And how do I change a little bit of the process within broader culture that makes this stuff become waste and that makes so much stuff get wasted? Mm. And I think it's also something that's really good to teach kids is that slight revulsion to waste Um, because it's important for them to be able to look at a loaf of bread, which apparently is just I read a recent study that rated bread as the most wasted food in Australia. and to think about the resources that have gone into that and go, that makes me feel a bit ill that that loaf of bread is there and that only a third of it has been eaten and it's just gone mouldy on the counter and now it's getting chucked away. Because it is a very kid-like thing. Like As you're talking, I'm remembering. As a kid, I was, like, baffled by how all this rubbish we could just put into the earth. Like I was just like, I just, I just had, I couldn't stomach that idea. So I rejected it. I was like, well, that can't be what's happening. Like this couldn't just all be being buried in the earth. (laughs) And there was a tip around the corner from our house, right? We used to go to the tip and I used to see it. But there was part of me that just couldn't understand 
how the grown-ups would let that happen. And then it happened again with chemicals. I remember having that very visceral reaction like, well, this doesn't smell or feel right or like I'm having, you know, even I was just allergic to life back then as I am now. But like I remember just being like, this is, but surely the grown-ups are looking after me, right? Like they're, they're not. The grown-ups aren't looking after me. They're not. It's such a <laughs> realisation when you get to that point. The grown-ups are mean to each other and they pay each other's friends off to get contracts and they say all the rules that you get told are polite when you're little that we have to all obey when we grow up because that's how you be a proper person. A proper, a proper person. person, yeah, and yeah. isn't that weaponized, right? But, uh, but the thing I love about about what you said about that you don't, you don't take the environmental angle so much is that I think that inherently we... There's a, there's a whole part of this that I think we feel like we need more because we inherently have grown up in cultures where having power over people and this kind of domination, like colonial cultures where everyone has experienced shaming or trauma or some experience in the body of not feeling enough and that I think we compensate for that. And we know the links, I guess, with connection and addiction and all of these things. But there's this whole part of this that's like we don't feel enough so then we need to have more. And there's this healing journey that I think I've been on as part of, and frugal hedonism is a huge part of that, is learning that me being a mammal in my body, as you say, experience the pleasure of it. In your book you talk about like eating the apple with a knife against a warm brick wall and I just that image has stayed with me for so long or or the fact that I can enjoy so much listening to someone's story even though I wasn't there extracting the thing or like watching it on a YouTube or like that I could experience the joy and the pleasure of that and I think that when we talk about um about environmentalism it so often puts the human being in a shame posture that I don't feel like leads to us making good decisions that are Mm. positive for us or the world. I feel like it just leads us into a path of more shame and then more humiliation and then more like having to project that pain onto others and so on and so forth. So the cycle continues. I'm wondering what you feel about like how do you be around other beings that are deeply in this culture of consumerism but also have love and compassion for them and how do you do that within yourself as well? Yep. Um, God, that's a really, really challenging question for me at the moment Um, because I feel like I have actually become a lot more intolerant as I've gotten older, especially over the last few years um, since writing the book, is because as I'm seeing environmental urgency become so pressing that it's almost <laughs> unthinkable about, then my frustration with people that I know who don't seem to care much or ostensibly care but do very, very little at all to acknowledge that caring or reflect it in their behaviours. I'm not finding myself able to have a lot of tolerance 
and compassion for it. Mm. I've got a lot of real anger. <laughs> um, and I'm still trying to work out how to go about life with that. Um, the compassion that I do find comes very much from the fact that part of the stuff that I learned while researching writing the book to talk about advertising culture in particular was just really getting a, a proper appreciation for how perfidious it is, how insidious it is that I think we said in the book that, and this was uh, nine years ago now, and this is US dollars, so it's probably going to be double this figure, but that at that point a thousand US dollars on average was spent per person on advertising to each of us annually. So that's probably very rough guess, 2000 Australian dollars at this point, maybe even more. Um, is that my compassion comes from the fact of seeing people feeling lost about how to feel beautiful in their lives and falling prey to this incredibly psychologically manipulative and clever and merciless machine of messages that we get sent via all the forms of media that we're exposed to and that then get reinforced by our peers because they bounce around and acquire veracity via the more human beings they kind of pass through, we go, well, that's the truth, even if the original method message has come from media, which it often has. And all of those media campaigns really do play to that sense of you are, your life is not beautiful enough without this stuff and getting this stuff is the way to have a beautiful life. Um, and we, we're aesthetic creatures that want a beautiful life full of company and wonder and feeling lovely in ourselves and sensual pleasure. And um, when you've got a really, really clever machine where highly paid professionals spend all their time thinking about how to make us feel like we're not that thing unless we have that stuff, then I have a lot of compassion for falling prey to that. Um, and there's probably a lot of reasons why I haven't fallen as prey to it as a lot of people have. I, you know, I had very academically inclined intellectual left-wing parents that instilled a lot of good critical thinking skills in me, which a lot of people didn't have that bonus to get them rolling <laughs> at the start of life. Um, and I, my compassion comes from, feeling like I can see that sense of lack that has been played to in all these other human beings. But my frustration comes from not having the power to convince enough of them otherwise <laughs> in enough time to save them. Enough, I know. Yeah. I really and that easily can get, that frustration can easily get confused with anger. Um, yeah. Yes, because it feels it feels like an impotency that I don't know how to overcome. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think the flip side of that that love of beauty 
and wanting a beautiful life that we have is that the really, and this is what partly drove the writing of the book, is that both Adam and I had, so Adam, was, Adam Grubb is my collaborator on the book, um, felt like we actually had pretty darn beautiful lives and that we could see a lot of our friends were starting to feel like they didn't. And we started really trying to look at lots of the philosophical and practical habits that we had that were keeping us protected in that way that some of our peers were struggling with. And then we started interviewing other people who were really low consumers either because they'd grown up in the depression or they'd come from uh, cultures where people just really live really with very little material consumption. And we sort of said, well, what makes, what made or makes you feel good about yourself and good about your life when you were consuming so little? And we found that we had a lot in common with those people in what we were doing that was making us feel pretty great despite being really low consumers. And that's sort of how all the various tips, because the book's broken up into 52 tips, that some of them are practical, lots of them are philosophical about how to think about money, how to think about pleasure, but also more practical stuff on terms of how you get what you need in the practical way in life. Um, and yeah, I think because we are creatures that are just, we want that beauty in our lives that if we are given little glimpses into all the ways in which not consuming can give us more capacity for that beauty, then, then you're on the winning streak. And I find it interesting in that even being someone who now has a chronic health condition that's really limiting and challenging in lots of ways, I think to my, which I struggled with for a little while because I was like, wow, I've written this book where there's a thread going through it that says, if you live this kind of lifestyle, you'll be so healthy. And, and then these issues I had started really snowballing, getting a lot more dominant in my life. But when I then think about what the health issues that I have would have done to me Mm -hmm. if I wasn't the frugal person I had who already had a whole lot of really self-protective habits in place, I would be screwed by now. I would be drug dependent. I'd probably be obese. I'd probably be semi-housebound. All the stuff that mainstream culture and the medical establishment has been directing me to try and do in reaction to having the health issues I have would have really done me a lot of damage. Whereas the fact that I continue to go, all right, I've got this issues, but I have to bike everywhere I go. I have to stay fairly strong. I have to maintain good social relationships. I have to keep a pretty healthy sort of mostly whole foods diet peppered with huge amounts of ice cream sundaes when I feel like that's exactly the right thing to do. Um, all keeps me really healthy on this basic level so that the health issues I do have stay manageable. Um, And so I've actually switched my thinking recently to going, oh, no, this is actually a completely valid part of being the person that wrote this book to talk about (laughs) is those health issues. Yeah. yeah. No, you go. No, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, I just was just going to jump in and say I completely relate and I, that switch. 
as I always, I also have, you know, ongoing levels of inflammation and autoimmune stuff that waxes and wanes through the seasons and cycles. But where I've landed is, is that my body is literally will not tolerate a, a, a life that we've come to think is normal. Like, like I can't put my screen late into the night without yeah. the next day, like having really high information. I can't, there's just this uh, very, my body is this incredible barometer for what's life giving, you know, and I'm so grateful for that. I wouldn't have discovered these ways of being if my body could perform in the way that everyone else's can, you know. That's so interesting to hear because that's very similar to how I would word the conclusion I've come to is that I think a lot of people with the rise of all sorts of chronic health conditions um, are canaries in the coal mine for modern lifestyle and there's some physical makeups that are dealing with the modern lifestyle fairly well, um, but there's a lot of people whose bodies aren't, and it sounds like we're both in that category, of just being slightly higher-tuned barometers in reacting to, ah, oh, this stuff just isn't really good for for people's bodies and we're going to flare up because it's all getting too much. And I've really come to a similar conclusion is that if I hadn't already somewhat dropped out of the the modern lifestyle in lots of ways, I would have had to do it now because my, my flesh will simply not tolerate it Mm -hmm. um, without going into cascades of migraines and total gut dysfunction and, horrible insomnia and nervous system breakdown and immune flare-ups and it's yeah and it seems to be getting to be true on one level or another for more and more people is that people are becoming actually hyper reactive to aspects of modern life um and to realize I guess that you know a, a lot of healing for me came from opting out of the rhetoric that the rhetoric of individual health, you know, and and really seeing the systemic structural challenges, environmental challenges that, that our health is reacting to. So there's no amount of supplements and sleep and yoga and like all of my, the, all the privilege that my whiteness affords me that can save me from yeah. what structurally, environmentally we've done, you know. Yeah, and absolutely. That's both healing and also terrifying in a way because it takes the onus off me as the individual and how many, you know, terrible practitioners I saw that were kind of like it's all in your head and, you know, all of that. Yeah. Well, it's not. I mean, what we've created is a is a literal uh, catastrophe for our human health. Yeah. There is there's something that I've mentioned in a lot of interviews around the book that the next generation is predicted to be the first generation of humans that has a lifespan shorter than their parents. So I think that pretty much sits on generation Y is what they're talking about when they say that. Um, And that 
that speaks volumes. It really does. Um, yeah, the the individual health thing was something that has been a similar revelation for me, partly because of health practitioners sending that message to you, but also because my basic character was for so long this incredibly gung-ho human being that was like, I can just reinvent all the rules and break through anything. And so I was quite susceptible to that then sense of, but this must be my fallibility that my body is failing in these ways. I'm doing something wrong because I've always managed to conquer all challenges with my body by being this really tough person with this really intensely powerful brain. Um, and so it then felt like the the guilt of becoming unwell was on me for not managing to do that. But the more people I talk to who have found that their bodies are failing them in similar ways in reaction to systemic cultural unhealthful structures, uh, the the more I've come to make a similar sort of piece that I think you're talking about of going, oh, shit, well, this kind of sucks, but it's also kind of a relief that it's not me failing somehow, that there's, there's a big problem happening here. And frugal hedonism definitely is a damn nice antidote to, <laughs> to that bigger problem. It really is, and I... And I want to just end by sharing that piece you were talking about beauty and aesthetic and, you know, how we misinterpret that to mean that, like, we have to look beautiful and we have to buy beautiful things. And I was harvesting our garlic yesterday and it was this just this most beautiful sensual experience of, like, digging up the bulbs and the smell of the garlic and stripping away the leaves and, like, you know, mm-hmm. this whole thing, rubbing the dirt off, plaiting the um, stalks together. And and as I was doing it, I was pulling out some rogue grass, I guess, that's grown. We get a lot of wildly sown grasses and um, grain you know, grain crops around that floated in on the wind. And there was this, I I shared it on my Instagram, I think it was a um, wheat or something. It was a grain crop, I don't know which one. But it was perfectly, you know, like if you were harvesting, you would get this grain. And it was that beautiful wheat shape and golden colour. And Mm. like you couldn't put, even if the, the most incredible design team tried to imagine designing life in a way that was aesthetically beautiful you could never even imagine what like our natural world has in it you know there's these incredible patterns and yeah looking at this grain stalk and for ages and just like you know I'd left the garlic at that point I was like whatever about the garlic I was just enraptured with this seed thing happening in my hand and I don't know it reminded me of of just that that if we fill up our lives with moments like that how could we ever finish our lives feeling like we hadn't had enough you know yeah it's pretty fun (laughs) so fun fun to be had I'm wondering if there's any parting um words that you would love to share with anyone listening I've loved this conversation so much I'm gonna um, handball it to a very 
interesting essay I read recently by an Australian writer called Delia Falconer who wrote an essay, um, oh, I need to fact check this. I think it's called On Glamour or The Idea of Glamour or The Problem of Glamour. If anyone wanted to Google it, if you, got, if you put in Delia Falconer and Glamour, you would get there. Um, and she talks at length about the, the environmental problems of our obsession with glamour and how, how seduced we have been by, by glamour. And that glamour basically does mean the sense of that, that shiny, glossy consumer life in a lot of ways. And it did get me thinking lots about different forms of glamour and ways that that word could be redefined. And when I went for my swim the next morning, I was seriously looking around at all these different kinds of bodies on the beach, just shining in the water droplets and in the sunshine and it felt like the most glamorous thing I'd ever seen watching this big fat old guy with like wild sticky up hair, just standing up to his belly button in the water, just wiping the waves backwards and forwards with his fingertips in this endless little splishy splashy way, gazing out into the horizon. And it, it just felt like he was one of the most glamorous figures that I'd seen in years. <laughs> Um, and yeah I want to leave it on the thing of reclaim your animal glamour in in non-consumer ways and think about contexts that make you feel glamorous in in other ways because it's very nice to do it's a beautiful image to end very powerful with this gentleman with the sticky up hair is a beautiful place to end the essay is called the opposite of glamour um, by Dilly. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you. We'll put it in the show notes. Annie, thanks so much for the convo. I've loved it. Brilliant. It was good to talk to you. You too.